0: as we look to our Lord in prayer. Our fathers are coming in your presence now as we continue in our worship of you, thanking you again for who you are, thanking you for what you've done, thanking you for Jesus Christ who died in our place for our sins. There are times in our lives, Father, where we thought we built a, a fortress, maybe physically, maybe financially, maybe relationally.
1: We thought we were secure. Then lo and behold, life broke in. We found ourselves under siege.
0: Maybe it's uh, back then, maybe it's uh, a now. And whatever the case is, Father, what we have to understand Once again, as greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And that our security in life is found in Jesus and in him alone. So Father, no matter what the needs are this morning, I pray that first and foremost that Jesus Christ is being honored as Savior and Lord. And if there is one or more in any of these services that comes today, and they know that When it comes to this phrase that Paul has used, being in Christ, that's not where they're at. Maybe they're into themselves, but they're not positioned in Christ. Pray now that you'll speak to that heart, open up that mind and that soul to what matters most and who matters most Jesus Christ. So for siege victims this morning, I'm praying, Father, that you'll take these words and minister to the hearts. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. And Shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at the fortress that appears on the screen. I was standing on the top of that a few days back. That's Masada. It's in Israel. It's a fascinating scene that tour buses make their way toward. You take a cable to make your way up to get to the top. Jacob our tour guide was brilliant in being able to pull together as I always look for in international travels We've been involved with uh, taking together the past and connecting it to the present and So I'm walking around and I'm pondering the significance of that setting You see according to Josephus a historian uh, Masada was first constructed by what were known as the Hasmoneans And somewhere around 37, 31, before Christ, Herod the Great fortified it as a refuge, a refuge for himself in the event uh, he found himself under siege. But what was fascinating for me is that my tour guide, Jacob, said he motioned me to come to the edge. I don't know about you, but I love living at the edge, and so I'm looking out, and I'm positioning myself, trying to get a better handle on what was happening down below, because you see, the remnants of Camp F are there, one of several temporary camps that the Romans used to create a siege against 960 Jews that were positioned on Masada. And you know what? It took 15,000 Roman soldiers to produce the siege against 960 Jews. Now, it seems a bit disproportionate, doesn't it? But what was fascinating is that as they laid siege to the 960 people in Masada, the Roman legions surrounded Masada, and they began to build a siege ramp siege ramp against the western face of the plateau. They moved literally thousands of tons of stone and beaten earth to do so. 15,000 soldiers to overwhelm 960 Jews. Now there's a tragic story, and you're going to have to look it up. You'll have to go online and get the rest of the story. But what fascinates me is that throughout history, the Jews have been under siege. But what also fascinates me is that to varying degrees, spiritually, medically, financially, occupationally, and so on, people in general are under siege. And believers are not exempt. What Second Corinthians does for us is that it chronicles what it's like for a man who is in Christ to live in Christ while simultaneously having to live out his life in this world. Paul is a man who understands what it means to be under siege. Why, in verse 26, he, the prior chapter, he spoke of frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. You get the sense that danger was part of his norm. It was a life under siege. Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Well, what I want to do is to talk briefly this morning about what God has to say to siege victims. And there's three Requirements that I find here for those who are in Christ, but under siege. Let's check them out. And the first is found in verses 11 and 12, and we're going to put it like this, number one, that when the Christian faith seems to be under siege, I want you first note with me the, the patience required of those who are in Christ. And we'll spot that idea as we're working our way through. But notice that it seems as though Paul has a way sometimes of using sarcasm to drive home his point. So there's an exclamation point in your English, not there in my Greek, but definitely in the English to draw out the sense of what he's saying where it seems as though his accusers have, have been bolstering themselves in their prideful ways and basically making them look good in comparison to the Apostle Paul, uh, the man who had started this church. And now he throws his hands, in essence, up in the air and says, okay, I've been a fool. You almost feel the weariness, don't you, in this, in this battered life of his? You forced me to it. I ought to have been commended by you. Now, as the Apostle Paul looks at the people who are in Corinth, believers, people who put faith and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, because the Apostle Paul had shared the gospel with them, well, these people should have been the ones who have been the defenders of the Apostle Paul. They should have been, so to speak, his Masada. They should have been the ones that have been his fortress, his protectors, in his time of need. But it seems as though it seems as though the Apostle Paul has got to defend himself on his own. You ever been there? Maybe that's where you're at right now. And you thought you had sufficient support, but lo and behold, there's an aloneness to the experience of what it means to be in Christ while simultaneously being in this world. So he looks now at these accusers, these false apostles, who are in essence saying that, that the Apostle Paul lacks bona fides, he lacks credibility, I ought to have been commended by you, Corinthians. You should have stood up for me. I feel as though I, I have nobody to defend me at this point. Well, he alludes to them here in this eleventh verse. For I was not at all. Now he goes on the offensive. He says, "I'm not. I was not at all inferior to these." And now he's still speaking somewhat sarcastically at this point, these super apostles. And you see what they do is they appear on the scene after the apostle Paul has left camp. And they distort then the gospel and they offer an alternative Jesus to people. And now everybody's confused because they're bringing these letters of commendation from religious authorities in Jerusalem. And now they're, the, the believers are beginning to question whether or not they should have believed what the apostle Paul said and whether or not the gospel that the apostle Paul presented is the gospel that they ought to be that they ought to be embracing. They're they're producing questions. And so he's got to defend his credibility now. And he says, I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. He speaks somewhat cynically, even though I am nothing. And that captures my attention, doesn't it, yours? Because when you find yourself under siege. It's critically important that somewhere along the way, not only do you find your security in Christ, but you are maintaining a sense of humility before Christ. Not puffing yourself up. It was said of David Livingstone that, as the biographer writes, so great was his humility, he never read or preserved any words of praise lest they might awaken his self-complacency and pride. And then there's William Carey, great, great missionary. his humility said, quote, when I am gone, speak not of William Carey, but of William Carey's savior. Is that you? While we're building a life, we've got to make absolutely certain that it is Jesus Christ who has the legacy, as one contemporary song puts it. For I, I find myself here reflecting upon what he says. And so he, he says, on one hand, I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. And on the other hand, he says, even though I am, I am nothing, and he's not going to back away from this battle, because he knows that life is not a playground. Life's a battleground. There's going to be times in life where you find yourself under siege. Civil war. Close of the first day of the Battle of Shiloh. This incredible union reverses. Biographer of U.S. Grant tells us Grant was met by his incredibly discouraged chief engineer, James McPherson, who said, things are looking bad, General. We've lost half our artillery and a third of the infantry. Our line is broken, we're pushed back nearly to the river. Well, Grant made no reply and McPherson, I marked it impatiently, asked what he intended to do. Do? Why, reform the lines and attack at daybreak. Won't the enemy be surprised? And they were. Because the writer tells us the Confederate troops were routed before 9 o'clock that morning. You see, no one's defeated until they give up. And Paul is not about to give up. If you are in Christ, we don't want you to give up because on the third day jesus was raised from the dead apostle paul knows this he had that experience with the with the resurrected savior on that road to damascus dramatically impacting his mindset on who christ is and how do you live your life quorum deo before the face of god from the latin well, in verse 12 now, what the Apostle Paul is going to have to do is he's going to have to establish his credibility, and there are going to be times where you might find yourself on the witness stand of life, and you're going to have to maintain your sense of credibility, when life seems to have put you under siege. It's just where he's at. He's been attacked from all angles. And so in verse 12, while these false apostles have been establishing their supposed credentials, he then tells us the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, speaking of himself, with utmost patience. You see that word patience? The Greek word hypomane means to be placed under or to live under. In other words, when you are under siege, what you've got to bear in mind is that what's more significant is that you are under the lordship of Jesus Christ when you find yourself under siege, if you are in Christ. And so now, you take that word patience, or in some translations, perseverance, you allow for the richness of that word, the Greek word, to begin to penetrate into your mindset. And now you say, okay, when a christian is under siege that's when their credibility is going to be observed is he authentic or is he not is she authentic or is she not now for the apostle paul he's going to have to establish his authenticity in order to reestablish in the mindset of the corinthians his authority Because in their minds, if his authority is diminished, maybe what he said about Jesus Christ is diminished, then they should start thinking seriously about what these super-apostles were claiming. But then again... Here is Paul, and he's demonstrating hippomate. he's demonstrating patience, he's demonstrating perseverance, which is necessary in the siege experiences of life. And for him personally, as an apostle, there were three distinctives of an apostle that would stand as a hallmark to be able to establish credibility. The first one is signs. Science. science. What signs do at this point is that they authenticate the words of an apostle when he produces signs. And then there's the second word, wonders. Creates a sense of awe about God. You see, when you are under siege, what people need is to have a fresh encounter with who God is. And they'll be watching very carefully whether or not the way you live your life creates a sense of awe of God rather than merely an awe of yourself or how strong you are when you're under siege. Are you doing that? Third phrase, mighty wicks, a distinctive of an apostle, speaks of God's power here at work. So no, the Corinthians are going to have to contrast these so-called super apostles who are claiming apostolic authority but they are dealing and they are living with simply human credentials versus the apostle Paul who has got credentials that have come from above, from God, and has demonstrated signs, demonstrated wonders, demonstrated these mighty works in the midst of the Corinthians, and he's creating for them now a situation where they've got to say to themselves, a man under siege is still a man who's able to maintain credibility. And if you find yourself under siege, what you're going to want to do is to make sure that you maintain a sense of credibility. Because, again, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, as we are told in the scriptures. Hupamane. patience. And that's a hard thing in your Masada moments when relentlessly it seems like a siege ramp is being built. You feel so vulnerable. Where previously you felt so secure. And you're wondering, how could this possibly how could this possibly be happening? But then again, when the Christian faith seems to be under siege, you take this first requirement. You note the patience required of those who are in Christ in 11 and 12. And you tie it together now to this second requirement found in verse 13, 14, 15. That when the Christian faith seems to be under siege, you note second of all the selflessness Required of those who are in Christ. (coughs) Now, notice how he begins with this. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Now it seems as though he's getting them to think, okay, if you're comparing me to these other supposed apostles, well, compare yourself now to these other churches if you think you're so significant. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself do not burden you? Now, here's the fascinating thing. The super apostles were those who had demonstrated such eloquence, which was very important in the Greek culture. That's how you gained a following. And then they would put out their hands and want to be reimbursed for their eloquence. And the apostle Paul here says, that was not my style. That's not my way. That's not who I am. I did not burden you. And he will use that burden, that word burden repeatedly. You see... When one establishes their credibility for Jesus Christ when you're under siege, you're still a giver. You're not on the take. You're still asking yourself, when it seems as though life is taking so much from you, how can I give still more to those who need to understand what grace is all about? Are you doing that? And so, somewhat sarcastically at this point, he throws up an exclamation point, doesn't he, in your English Standard Version, or whichever version, but it's not there in the Greek because, well, the exclamation points are not there, but the translators understand it. Forgive me this wrong, he says, somewhat cynically at this moment, as if he's countering now those those accusations being made by these supposed apostles. that are not really apostles. And so he comes at you and he says, for the third time, I am ready to come to you. Now, typically, when people let you down, and the Corinthians had let Paul down, it might be natural to start distancing yourself from those people, move on, move to a different relationship or whatever. But he says, I'm not giving up on you. No, nope, coming back. For the third time, I am ready. I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours,
1: but you. Don't you love that? Now, there's incredible humility here
0: that's found in his selflessness. Great biographer of um, Robert E. Lee, Douglas Freeman, ends the fourth and last volume of his biography. These words, it occurred in North Virginia, probably on his last visit there. A young mother brought her baby to him. He took the infant in his arms, looked at the child, then looked at her, and then the great general said slowly,
1: teach him, he must deny himself. Unquote. The Apostle
0: Paul understood what it meant to deny himself for the sake of others, even when he was under siege. How about you? Where you're wearied by life, but you still got to give more to life because you're living for Christ. So he says, I will not be a burden. He's going to deny himself. I, for I seek not what is yours. I'm not. I'm not in this for myself. I'm in it for you. I seek not what is yours, but you. See, personal use. Stay personal when you're under siege. But now he uses a proverbial expression from that time period. Parents understand this one. For children. Uh, are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So that parent who at two o'clock, hears that small child crying in the other room, eyes, your eyes are wide open, because you're not in it for yourself. You have saved up that extra energy to be able to get up at two and minister to that need. Or maybe that phone goes off at three in the morning and it's an adult child that you're concerned about, you've been praying for, and you're wide awake. You get what he's saying here. The children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So he says in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for soul." come here this morning feeling spent? Have you pondered what he said at this point? Even when under siege, he's willing to be spent for their souls, not for his. Happened years ago. A ship known as the Empress of Ireland sank. Among its passengers were 130 Salvation Army officers. We're told that only 21 of those Christian workers' lives were spared, Of the 109 who drowned, not one of them had a life preserver. But many of the survivors, we're told, tell us how those brave Christians, seeing that there were not enough life belts, took their own, strapped them on others, saying in the waters, I know Jesus.
1: I want you to live.
0: When you're under siege, when it seems as though life is so contrary, what are you willing still to give for the sake that others might understand you know Jesus? The one who gave of himself and died in your place, my place, for our sins. There are Empress of Ireland moments, you see, where people are... They're going down and what they desperately need to see is how someone who loves Jesus is still willing to be thinking about others rather than preserving the last remnants of their of their own dignity, of their own security. And the Apostle Paul, he's still thinking about others. How about you? So there you have it, and you're in verse fifteen. It says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And now you almost feel as though he's taking a deep breath, and you're seeing it on the screen here as you go on with this verse. I don't know if he's feeling the love. Because then he adds, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? Why are they loving these false apostles more, loving the apostle Paul less, even though he gave so much of himself to them? I'm standing a few days before Masada experience in that upper room. Pamela's on one side of the room. I'm the other in the upper room. Jacob, our guide, is there, he's Jewish, he's pointing things out to me. This is, where, this is where Jesus would have washed the disciples' feet, he says. My mind's racing, thinking about Jesus washing Judas's feet. A John 13 moment. I remember exploring the chapters of 13 through 17 here, Sunday's morning, and mornings in prior years. And out, and as a result of that moment, when he had finished washing the disciples' feet, he would then say a new commandment I give you. That you love one another. Notice that he had to give it as a command because it doesn't come natural. It's not a feeling. It's it's something that's supernatural. It comes from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so I'm standing there in that upper room and I'm thinking about Toby Mack at this point. Yeah. Senior past pastor's gonna be into hip hop too, you know. And I was feeling that feeling that breeze singing like a song through the tall oak trees. It was just another summer night. Had to be the last thing on my mind. Yeah, I was all but lost in the moment. I was young and running wide open. It was just another summer night. had to be the last thing on my mind when love broke through. You found me in the darkness, wandering through the desert. I was a hopeless fool. Now I'm hopelessly devoted. My chains are broken, and it all began with you. When love broke through, and it all began with you. When love broke through. It's amazing thinking about Toby Mac in the upper room. But love broke through. And Jesus washes the disciples' feet, you see. And Judas leaves the room. And then Jesus ministers in chapters 14 through 17 in that great upper room discourse. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He says to disciples who are feeling as though they're under siege. And very shortly, so will Jesus. As the troops approach him in that garden of Gethsemane. It's that where you're at. And so there you have it now. You're at that point where you're checking out these requirements. And when the Christian faith seems to be under siege, you note first of all, the patience required of those who are in Christ in verses 11 and 12. And second of all, the selflessness required of those who are in Christ in 13 through 15. But you're not done yet because you still got 16 through 18 coming your way. And thirdly, when the Christian faith seems to be under siege, note, furthermore, the integrity required of those who are in Christ. And now... And now there's the Apostle Paul. He's going to use a lot of questions here to establish his credibility, his integrity. He's going to get them to start thinking, utilize questions at this point. You're at 16, but granting that I myself do not burden you, there's that word again, They've got to establish the fact that he wasn't on the take. It seems as though now these super apostles, these false apostles are on the take. I didn't burden you. I was crafty. You say, not I say, you say, got the better of you by deceit. But here's the questions of the hour for the man who's trying to maintain his credibility. But then didn't Jesus Christ have to do that as well? Maintain his credibility in the face of his accusers? And you take a deep breath because sometimes when you're under siege... Your credibility is under siege simultaneously. Questions? Did I take advantage of you? Think about it, Corinthians. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? Question. I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. You know Titus, he's got credibility. Did Titus take advantage of you? What's he saying? You see, as we explored in chapters eight and nine, there was a financial offering that was collected to be able to be sent to the hurting church in Jerusalem. And maybe the false apostles were accusing that the apostle Paul was on the take and was pocketing his own linings of his pocket with the dollars that were meant to be sent to Jerusalem. But you see, if you follow the sequence timing-wise of when this letter was written, the dollars had not yet gotten there, so to speak, to Jerusalem. So how could the Jerusalem church possibly validate at this moment what the Apostle Paul is saying? So he's going to have to depend upon the Corinthians to simply reevaluate their take on the credibility of the Apostle Paul through the questions he's posing. Did Titus, you know Titus, would he do that? Titus take advantage of you? And did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? When credibility is also under siege? But then you think of Corey Ten Boom and in her book, In My Father's House, in the midst of the World War II experiences and how that household had protected the Jews from the Nazi infiltration of that region. Some of my happiest days came when it was decided that I could work in the shop as an assistant to my father. Oh, I love being with him. I love the shop itself. There were ups and downs in the watchmaking business. Father loved his work. But he was not in it for the money. Times were often hard. And once I remember, we were faced with a real financial crisis. I was the one responsible for handling the bills. And a large bill had to be paid. And there simply wasn't any money. And then one day, a well-dressed gentleman came into the shop and asked to see some very expensive watches. And I stayed in the workshop, and I prayed with one ear, turned to the conversation in the front room. Hmm. This is a fine watch, Mr. Ten Boom, the customer said, turning a very costly timepiece over in his hands. It's just what I've been looking for. And I held my breath. I held my breath as I saw the affluent customer reach into his inner pocket, pull out a thick wad of bills. Praise God, cash, I say to myself. I saw myself paying the overdue bill, helping to support our family, being relieved from the burden. Burden? The burden of anxiety I've been carrying for the past weeks. The customer looked at the watch admiringly and commented, I had a, I had a good watchmaker here in Harlem. His name was Van Houten. Perhaps you knew him. My father nodded his head. He knew almost every, everyone in Harlem, especially other watchmakers. He goes on, when Van Houten died and his son took over the business, I kept on doing business with a young man. However, I, I bought a watch from him, didn't run at all. I sent it back three times. He couldn't seem to fix it. That's why I decided to find another watchmaker. Will you show me that watch, please, Corey's father asked. The man took a large watch out of his vest, gave it to her father. Hmm. Now let me see, Father said, opening the back of the watch, and he adjusted something and handed it back to the customer. There. Very little mistake. It'll be fine now. Uh, Sir, uh, I trust that young watchmaker. Someday he will be just as good as his father. So, if you ever have a problem with one of his watches, come to me. I'll help. I'll help you out. Now,
1: I will give you back your money, and you return my watch.
0: Corey says, "I was horrified." I saw my father take back the watch and give the money to the customer. And then my father opened the door for the man as the man left. My heart was where my feet should be as I emerged from the shelter of the workshop. Papa, how could you? Well, father looked at me patiently through his steel-rimmed glasses. Corey, he said, you know that I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ at the burial of Mr. Van Houten. You know that I told them that Jesus died for our sins. Of course I remembered. It was Father's job to speak at the burials of the watchmakers in Harlem. and My father was greatly loved by his colleagues and he was an incredibly gifted speaker. He always used the occasion to talk about Jesus. Corey. What do you think that young man would have said when he heard that one of his good customers had gone to Mr. Tenboom? Do you think the name of the Lord would have been honored? Well, Corey, as for the money, let's trust the Lord. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills.
1: He'll take care of us. I felt ashamed.
0: I knew that father was right. I wondered if I could ever have that kind of trust instead of blind determination to follow my own stubborn path. Could I really learn to trust God? Yes, Father, I answered quietly. But then again, whom was I answering?
1: My earthly father? Or my father in heaven?
0: Under siege. But when you find yourself under siege, note the patience required of those who are in Christ. Note the selflessness required of those who are in Christ. Note the integrity of those who are in Christ. And when people are looking at how you manage life when you're under siege, may they look to Christ. Let's stand together. Thanking you, now, Father, for moments like these. We want to be so real with life and real with you.
1: Take all that's here
0: in these verses. Take the richness of the history of Masada. Take the words of Tobiah Macc. Take the experiences of life and We put everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ because there's something powerful about while we are in this world. We're meant to be in Christ in this world.
1: And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.